You may have a seat. And as you grab your seat, cop, uh, grab a copy of your scriptures and turn to the passage that Brother Nick read for us in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians in chapter 8. And as you're turning there, if you would please join me as we pray and look to the Lord for his grace. I know I need it. Let's pray. Father, we are in need of your grace every hour, um, every day, every moment. And so we uh, come to you with full confidence that we don't live um, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we trust that your word will do its perfect work in our hearts uh, to bring about obedience, faith, joy, and ultimately glory to Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this week uh, I did a lot of reading on this topic that we're discussing today, the topic of money. And what I learned was it's probably the least favorite thing for preachers to preach on. And not only that, but it's the least favorite thing for congregations to actually hear. But I do not think that that's going to be the case this morning. And the reason is because both you and I know that we are not a health, wealth, and prosperity kind of church, not by any stretch. And both you and I know, probably by way of experience and people that we know that have been taken advantage of, that it's very damaging, isn't it? Destructive even for charlatans and so-called pastors to make a beeline for money every week. They go to a particular text in Scripture and they talk about money. And what's revealing about that is that they don't really love the Scripture. They love the dollar signs. But that is not our heart here. And I also fear that because of those things, all the negative stuff, that a lot of preachers actually avoid talking about money and finances and stewardship. But the Apostle Paul and the New Testament writers, they never shy away from these topics. And the reason they don't is because the Scriptures address them. Jesus himself has much to say about finances, much to say about giving, In fact, you might be surprised how much, in fact, the Bible actually talks about finances. It's estimated that in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one out of every six verses is somehow, someway related to stewardship. I mean, you think about it. Think back to Jesus' teaching, his sermons, his parables, and what you'll find is that they oftentimes focus in on what it is that we truly treasure. And so when you open the Gospels, what you'll hear, what you'll see is Jesus himself cautioning Christians, cautioning the non-believer about greed and covetousness and the lust for the things of the world. He says things like, you're to be on guard. You're to watch yourselves. You're to check your motives. And so over and over again, we have this idea that money is important in the eyes of the Lord, And so we want to talk about this, but we're not talking about this because we think that money is sinful. In fact, money is actually neutral. It's what we say is amoral. It's not evil and it's not good in and of itself. It's how we use it that determines that. And so you're familiar with that passage in 1 Timothy 6, 9 that says, those who want to get rich, they fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. 
And then the apostle says this, this is the key here, for it is the love of money that is a root of all sorts of evil. And some aspiring to it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And I think what we learn from that particular passage is, look, you can, you can love money and have a lot of it, or you can love money and have none of it. But if your love is money, if your desire is what money buys you, that is where we run into all kinds of issues. And so you say, well, Dom, if, if, if the Bible talks about money so often, how come we as a church don't talk about it all that often? And I would say, Pastor Nick and I, we, we certainly address this um, in our membership classes, in our membership interviews. Many of you that are coming on for membership soon, we've had this discussion. Uh, we give our members detailed financial reports at quarterly meetings But because this topic came up last week in our exposition of Philippians, we felt it was important to try to provide a theology of giving and generosity from the Scriptures. Now, let me just say from the outset, because maybe you're wondering, well, are we in trouble here? What's going on? Why Why are we doing a little topical study on giving? The elders, the finance team, we're super encouraged with where we are as a church. You guys realize we have absolutely zero debt. Every year that I've been here, we've been increasing in our giving. So in the two and a half years that we've seen, the Lord has blessed this church. So we're not in great need. We don't have debt. I don't feel like we're being super unfaithful. But I do feel an obligation to be able to open up the Word of God and tell you what God's Word says about giving. And I would say, if anything, the big big bonus is that your pastor has been deeply convicted, extremely challenged, and I think my own thinking about money and generosity and how they relate to worship has been transformed. Jesus is the one that said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so listen, the way that we think about money and what we do with our money reveals our character. It reveals our moral commitments and is a true indication of our real spirituality. So as believers of the manifold grace of God, our lives, listen, our lives should be all about giving and not just about money, but our lives should be about giving to the kingdom, giving to God's people, And if there's anything else that will help fulfill the kingdom purpose, we need to be committing to giving toward that. So as we come to the word of God, I trust that he's going to work in in, in our hearts like he's worked in mine as we think about just sanctified stewardship. And we're going to do something that we don't normally do. So we're tackling two chapters. We've been kind of walking through Philippians, looking at a couple verses. Sometimes it's just one verse. We're going to try to cover all 40 verses today. So here's some brief context, just to kind of set the stage as we walk away from Philippians and then get into 2 Corinthians. And it helps us to think back to the book of Acts. So early church, early church life, you need to know that there was a big famine that took place. It was actually prophesied, I think, about in in Acts chapter 11. And this famine hit Judea and Jerusalem especially hard. And the apostles got together and they decided to organize a giving project which should include all the churches that were being planted. And the decision was to appoint two men 
Barnabas and Paul, and they would tag team to kind of lead this great generous giving effort. Now, if you think back, even to those days when Paul was first converted, he met with the 12 apostles. And remember, they were a little hesitant. This guy was persecuting and killing Christians, and and now you want to bring him into the fold. And so they had a one-on-one, a face-to-face with the apostle. And we learn that after they met with Paul and they tested the sincerity of his faith, they said, hey, praise the Lord. God has done a miracle. Let's let this guy take the gospel to the Gentiles But listen closely to the instructions that they gave the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2 and in verse 9. They said this, And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And then very interestingly, Paul in verse 10 says this, Only they asked us to remember the poor. And Paul's attitude was, that was the very thing that I was eager to do. And so this project, the famine hits and this collection begins, this big giving project is actually a big theme throughout the New Testament. So it's in Acts chapter 11, it's in Acts chapter 12, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, it's in Romans chapter 15. In fact, when Paul gives his testimony before Felix, it's also there in Acts chapter 24. And what we learn about this generous giving project, the most information we have about it is what Pastor Nick read to us this morning in our scripture reading. Two whole chapters devoted to this collection. And let me say this, it was a big deal to the Apostle Paul, not just because he was passionate about the poor having their needs met, but even more so he was passionate about the unity of the church and what this offering would enable the churches to do. You see, the, the, the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles had already been broken down by Christ. That demarcation line that separated the two had already been erased And yet what Paul views here is a sweet opportunity, an expression of gospel grace for the Gentile churches to support the Jewish church, where in fact the missionaries were sent out of to establish those Gentile churches. And so if we can get both sides to recognize God's grace is the centerpiece of both then it would encourage and bolster and strengthen the faith and unity of the church. And so Paul, he wants the Corinthians to get in on this. It's already taking place, and he's writing to the Corinthians, and he's saying, I I want you to get involved in this. Now, 1 Corinthians, you know, is largely corrective in nature. Lots of problems, lots of issues Paul addresses. But here in 2 Corinthians, it's largely congratulatory. So the first seven chapters is Corinthians... Excellent, you've done well, you've repented, you're you're making progress, you're growing in spiritual maturity. But he focuses attention in chapters 8 and 9 just on this idea of giving. And so we want to learn about generous giving. This is where we're going. Our main idea, if you're taking notes, is very simple, and it's this. God's grace given to us should guide us to give generously. Let me say it again. God's grace given to us should guide us to give generously. And our outline is three major headings. 
We'll look at the theological implications of our giving, the, the Christological, that our giving should be Christologically driven, and then we'll examine some practical elements to our generous giving. Okay, so that is our outline. This is where we're going. Let's begin with the theological implications of our giving. First of all, our giving is grace-driven. Grace-driven. Look at there at 8.1. Paul begins by explaining to the Corinthian churches that the churches in Macedonia gave generously, not out of guilt, but because of God's grace. It was God's grace that was the driving force of their generosity. Uh, I just saw a little bit earlier, earlier, sola grace. I love that word. The word in Greek is charis. And you don't necessarily see that in our English translation, but in the Greek, it just jumps off the parchment. That word appears over and over and over again. And so we see it there in 8.1. And then you see it there in 8.4. Your translation might say fellowship, but is the grace of sharing. We see gracious work in verse 8 and verse 7. It comes from the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in 8.9. Your translation might say offering in 8.19, but there again is the word charis. This is a gracious work. All of that just to prove the point that the overarching theme of all the giving, the generous giving, is God's grace. It's so important because, look, it is not material prosperity that propels the churches of Macedonia to give. Instead, it is the magnificence of God's grace. That is the motivation for them to give and give so generously. So it's God's grace that empowers and prompts us as Christians to be an extension of his grace to others, especially those in need. And our theology tells us that generous giving is not only grace-driven, but it's also, listen, God-glorifying. God-glorifying. Our giving, your giving, my giving, it's always aimed at the glory of God. Paul says in 8.19 that this whole operation, this whole endeavor, this whole collection from the Gentile churches for the church in Jerusalem is for the glory of the Lord himself. And then later in chapter 9 and verse 11, look there, he says this, you will be enriched in everything for all generosity, which through us is bringing about thanksgiving to God. You see, God makes us abound financially, not for our own sake, but to draw attention to his generosity. I remember when I was a college student at Master's College at the time, um, poor dude from East LA going, and the only way I could afford school was I got a scholarship. I don't have a job, I don't have money. And the master's program in the basketball program had something called a home away from home. And there were families who would basically adopt uh, athletes and they'd welcome them into the home. They would be hospitable, they provide dinners. Well, I had a sweet couple, Ron and Julie Long. And Terry, you know Ron, he works the security down at Shepherd's Conference. Sometimes he hooks us up with seats. It's great. Ron has been such a blessing in my life. This is over 20 years ago, but I still remember his generosity. Because Ron would not only invite me, but he'd invite my brand new good-looking girlfriend with me. And, and he would feed us. And sometimes Ron would slip me some money and say, hey, go take her out on a date. And he'd let me use his pool. And he just, he just loved me. 
Listen, but Ron didn't want all the attention and all the praise, and, and he, he didn't want to be congratulated. He wanted to point to the sufficiency and goodness of God. See, it was God's blessing in Ron's life, and he became an extension of God's love for me. And that's exactly what we see here. Paul is saying, look, it is all God's grace. That is why we're generous. When we experience it, when we taste it, we want to be extension of that to other people. Look back uh, there at uh, 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 12. Paul, again, he says this, for the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, it does that, but it also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. You see, we honor God in our finances when we bless others in need because it provides us an opportunity to think about God and to give God thanks, not to us. So generous giving, it is theological, but specifically, listen to this, it is Christological. It's Christologically driven. Our generosity, our generous giving is distinctly Christian. You and I know this. Uh, America is actually one of the most generous countries in the world. When you begin to look at the statistics and see how much America gives towards certain causes, every time you go to the grocery store, you go to the movies, people are being asked to give to like St. Jude's Hospital or Children's Hunger Fund. People love to give, and a lot of people love to give to God. However, when we think about Christian giving, it is just that. It is Christian Christ being at the center, Christ being the motivation. You cannot detach our giving from the doctrine of Christ. So let me say this, the more robust your Christology, the more resources you'll be willing to give for the glory of Christ. Our giving needs to be connected to the doctrine of Jesus, to his pre-incarnate glory, to his incarnation as a man, to his humble life, to his hanging on the cross, to his resurrection from the dead, and to our union with him. Look there at verse 9. Powerful verse. Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though being rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The riches Paul has in mind here, they are not earthly riches. That's not what he's talking about. We know that the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his what? His head. Everything from the manger to the grave was borrowed. So you say, well, in what way was Jesus rich? Well, he's not rich like Rockefeller rich. He's not rich like Elon Musk rich. So, so what is Paul talking about here? What, what kind of wealth does Jesus have? You begin to say things like, man, Jesus was like Bill Gates rich. That's an insult to Jesus. Jesus doesn't just own some stocks and some stuff. He owns everything. Not only that, but the Bible tells us that he was rich in his incarnate glory. It tells us that he was rich in fellowship with God the Father, eternally the Son, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, receiving worship from the most majestic beings. And yet... With all that richness, with all that glory, the Bible says, yet for your sake, he became poor. He became poor 
not just taken in the form of a man, but the Bible says they became a slave and he died the death of a condemned criminal. And he did this not merely for his own sake, but he did this for you and me. He lived the sinless life that we were supposed to live. He died a condemned death that we were supposed to die. You see, it's impossible to understand Paul's teaching on generous giving apart from the incarnation of Christ. It's impossible to understand generous giving apart from his perfect life lived, his perfect death died, and his great resurrection. You see, when Paul, he wants to encourage the Christians to be generous, this is exactly where he begins. He doesn't go to the Old Testament tithe. He doesn't even go to Jesus' moral teachings on how to be generous. He connects it, he ties it to Jesus himself, the historical facts of the gospel message. You see, our giving, it needs to be inspired and instructed by Jesus' inexpressible gift. That's the ultimate reason why we want to be generous. You and I, listen to this, we are debtors. This morning, you and I, we're still debtors. Yes, Jesus paid it all, right? All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He's washed it white as snow. We can never pay Jesus back for what he did. We're not trying to earn our favor every time we drop in some money in a tithe. That's not the point. All of it is an expression, an understanding of God's great grace and his great sacrifice. And we give as a response to those things out of gratitude and love and appreciation for him giving his very life for us. Look, when we understand, even in the smallest fraction, the King of Kings has given us everything, how can we dare be willing to hold on to anything? If our generous giving is to be truly Christologically driven, then it will be also sacrificial. So when we think about Jesus' self-sacrifice, that becomes the standard. We give because he gave. And Paul makes this abundantly clear to the Macedonians. They weren't giving because of their pockets being whole. They were actually giving with holes in their pockets. They weren't a wealthy church. They didn't have tons of money, but they gave sacrificially anyway. Look at what it says there um, in 8.3. He says, for I testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. They gave beyond their ability. Now, when you think about that, well, what again is the motivation for such sacrificial giving? Well, didn't Jesus say, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me? I think they just took that seriously. And listen, when it says they gave beyond their ability, I don't think that they're giving recklessly. I don't think Paul is commending them for being irresponsible with their finances. But he's encouraged that somehow, some way, even in their poverty, they figured out a way how to be generous. Despite not having much, they still gave. They would have been perfectly justified to use their funds on their family. That would have been fine. But instead, they go above and beyond. Church, never forget that it cost Jesus dearly to redeem us, and it should cost us dearly to follow him, not to earn salvation. But following Jesus is not easy, and it will require sacrifice. Christian giving, like everything else in the Christian life, is a call to die, 
It's a call to deny ourselves. It's a call to take up our cross daily. It's a call to follow in Jesus' footsteps. And this is how we image and we imitate Jesus. Listen, it is not wrong to be wealthy. Praise the Lord if you're prosperous. That is a good thing. That is a gift of God. It is not wrong. Don't misunderstand me. But it is wrong to be a Christian, to prosper, and then to live a lifestyle that looks nothing like Jesus with no sacrifice whatsoever. So I want you to ask yourself, are you inspired? Are you instructed by Christ's sacrificial giving? And I'm not just talking about money. It's real simple just to fall into that category. You could be giving, giving faithfully, but that means very little to you because you have plenty. How about your time? How about your spiritual gifts? If you just reduce it to money, I think we missed the point. Are you in some way living sacrificially to make much of Christ, to say he is more valuable, he is more worthy? That is the heart, I think, of what Paul is describing here. So generous giving, it's theological, particularly it is Christological, but also it is very, very practical. And here, the second part of our sermon, we're going to get to all the practical elements based on these two chapters. So first of all, our giving should be, practically speaking, passionate. Passionate. The Macedonians, it says here, they're passionate about giving. They're practically begging Paul to give. They want to help with the relief. Paul, how how can we do this? Once they heard that Paul was taking up the the collection for the Jerusalem church, they said, "We, we want a piece of this action. We want to be able to give to this thing. And they couldn't even wait for Paul to ask. Look at all the words that Paul uses to describe their eagerness. It's there in 8.4. It says they were begging us with urging. In 8.7, it says they were doing it with all earnestness. In 8.8, there we get, you see it again, earnestness. In 8.16, earnestness. In 8.22, they were earnest, they were earnest, they were earnest. They were passionate to want to help. Brothers and sisters, listen to this. This is Christianity 101. This isn't graduate-level Christianity. This isn't Christianity on steroids. What this is is people who have been impacted by the gospel of grace who respond naturally to the gospel of grace. It means that when you have an opportunity, listen, to take someone a meal, you do it. It means when someone is moving and they need help, they need a truck, they need muscles, they need your back, you show up. It means when there is someone who just needs a shoulder to cry on and some counsel that you make yourself available. You spring into action because you want to be an extension of Christ's love and care. Let me just say this. As I was preparing this and I'm thinking through some of the illustrations and what to communicate, my heart was so encouraged that our church, I do think, exemplifies this. We meet needs. We're quick to meet needs. We're hospitable. I just want you to know that there is a benevolence fund that we have, and we give to that regularly. And we're we're looking for ways. We're looking for opportunities to give that to people who have needs. In fact, I had someone just last week just came to me secretly. If you know anyone who has a need, I am always ready and willing to help meet that need. That blesses my heart. I wasn't coercing her, or I just said her. 
That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> but listen, they were eager to give, but I want you to notice the reason why. And it's here in the text. Look there, it says, they first gave themselves to the Lord. There's the reason. This is why they gave more than expected, because when you give yourself to the Lord first, you're at his disposal, along with everything that you have, to be a gift to others. It's only when you understand how much the Lord has given you that you become a I can't wait to give Christian, rather than I can't believe I have to give critic. There's a big difference. Generous giving is passionate. And when you're passionate about what God has done for you, and when you see an opportunity to bless others, you are going to jump on it with a cheerful heart, with willingness, with eagerness. You don't have to be coerced. You don't have to be cajoled. You don't have to listen to a sermon because you're convinced that it will bring you joy. So yes, our giving is theological. It's Christological. Practically speaking, we're to give passionately, but we should also give punctually. Punctually. Paul commends the Corinthian church for their previous intentions in giving. And now he says, well, now it's time to follow through. Look there at uh, chapter 8 and verse 10. He says, and I give my opinion in this matter, for this is profitable for you, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But look at verse 11. He says, but now complete doing it also so that just as there was a readiness to desire it, so there may also be a completion of it from what you have. You see, Paul now wants their giving to be timely. You've prayed about it. You've purposed in your heart. You've planned. Now it's time to pull out your purse and put your money where your mouth is. That's what Paul is saying. The Corinthians have been planning for this, this, this the giving, this offering for a whole year, and Paul now has to prompt them to actually follow through. Put your money where your faith is. Now, I don't want any of us here thinking that somehow good intentions are the same thing as giving. You can't tell the state of California during tax season, I meant well, I was thinking about it, that's not going to fly. You know who else that won't work on? Your spouse. So ladies, you can cover your ears, I'm going to talk to the men real quick. Men, you can tell your wife that you have this amazing plan to celebrate your anniversary. You've bought the flights. You've booked the Airbnb. You've purchased the gift. You've made the reservations. But you've only done it up here. I'm not trying to throw you guys under the bus. But the reality is your good intentions are not romantic. You need to follow through on those things. Someone said, a good intention requires the support of a good action in order to translate that into a good outcome. The same is true with our relationship with the Lord and our giving. You think if God wants our yes to be yes to one another, how much more should our yes be to God? So if we're saying, oh God, I want to give you this and I want to do this and I'm going to bless this and only if I get, if I get this, then I'll do this. Well, do it. Do it. Your plan to give will always and only be a good intention until those plans progress toward productive actions. And so let me ask you, church, what have you done with your good intentions? What have you done? You might have a lot of them. 
You might have lots of plans and strategies and a whiteboard of all these things that you want to do. But have you taken that first step of obedience? Unless you actually follow through on those in good intentions with deliberate actions, you will always, always, always be more generous in your mind than in reality. So generous giving, practically speaking, it gives passionately, it gives punctually, but it also gives proportionally. Proportionally. Look there at verse 12. Paul says that the gift is acceptable according to what a person has and not according to what he does not have. See, we're to give proportionally to how the Lord has blessed us personally, not how he's blessed other people. And this is where we run into trouble. We begin to compare ourselves, and Paul is saying, no, it is how the Lord has blessed you personally. Not everyone makes the same amount or has the same amount, so the Lord doesn't expect or command us to give the same amounts. Listen, if you're a student and you're working part-time, there's a different expectation for you than someone who's making 100 k a year with all the benefits. It's not the same expectation. You won't be able to, or at least I should say you shouldn't be able to, give, some, give as much as someone who's making that kind of money. But sadly, too often is the case that you can have someone making 25000 and they're giving more because they're just better stewards and they're more generous than someone who's making 200000 because honestly, they're just stingy and they're not generous. But listen, we need to be clear that proportion is not the same thing as percentage. Paul isn't driving hard at percentages, right? If he wanted to, he could have re- easily reinforced this whole idea of the tithe, the, the tenth. He could have talked about it right here and it would have made sense, but he doesn't do that. And you ask why? Well, because if you do your own study on a tithe, you'll recognize that this is Old Testament, Old Covenant stuff. Okay, so you are not commanded New Testament times on this side of the cross to give a tenth. And you said, no, Dom, I think it's, it's, it's got to be a tithe. Well, if that's the case, then you realize that there was 12 to 14 tithes in the Old Testament. And so if you begin to do that math, it was probably over 20% that they were giving. That was a theocracy. That was taxes that they were paying. It's different. You see, Paul gives us a lot more leeway and leverage and latitude because he wants us to give from a cheerful heart, from a grateful heart, and he's, putting not, he's not putting restrictions with a percentage. And so we're to give proportionally. You say, proportionally how? How the Lord has blessed you. How has he blessed you? He's not trying to convince the church to give a certain percentage. And the reality is, for some people, to give a tenth, it would be irresponsible. But for other people, it really wouldn't be sacrificial. And so if you are going to give a tenth, I'm not going to get down on you. I'm just going to say you should probably make that your baseline, not your ceiling. What does it mean to give proportionally? I think asking three questions would be helpful. What do you have? What do you need to keep? And what can you live without? What do you have? What do you need to keep? And what can you live without? You see, Paul's main goal is to keep the Corinthians away from giving out of guilt. And so he says, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has. And so what he's saying there is he's leaving it up to you and the Lord. How is the Lord prompting you and compelling you? 
And how are you personally convicted on how you're to give? No one can tell you that. I can't tell you that. Nick can't tell you that. The finance team can't tell you that. We're not trying to force your hand whatsoever, and neither is Paul. Our giving should be passionate, punctual, proportional, but also periodic. Periodic. You know, church, just by coming to church every Sunday, there is a cadence to our corporate gathering. So you didn't come in here guessing what we were going to do. You know that when you come, there's a couple things to expect because even though we have flexibility in our order of service, just like we read more than we normally do, we still have some fixed principles, some essentials that we do every time we gather. And there's mainly five of them, maybe six, depending. Okay, What are the five things that we always, always do when we gather on a Sunday? We sing. We offer up our praise to God through music and with our voices. We read scripture. Paul told Timothy to give attention to the reading of the word. We preach. We proclaim the word of God that is priority. We pray. We do this corporately. We do this individually. You can say we participate in the Lord's Supper, which we'll do today. But there's one more thing that is an aspect of worship that rarely gets mentioned. We give. We give. That is a normal reoccurrence when we gather is we give as a form of worship. Giving is necessary as an act of worship. Now listen, sometimes our giving can be spontaneous based on a sudden need, and so we give without having to give to the church or through the church. But back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul gives specific instructions for the systematic week-by-week nature of giving. This is what he says. He says, On the first day of every week, each one of you is to set something aside, saving whatever he has prospered. And I just think there's wisdom in that. Our giving shouldn't be haphazard, just like nothing else in life we should be doing haphazardly. Our giving is an act of worship, which means that we do it regularly, we do it intentionally, and the beauty is we get to do that corporately. Now hear me, some of us, we give every other week. I think that's perfectly fine. Some of us, we like to write the check and drop it in the plate. That's a form of worship. I know someone who, he didn't want to give electronically. That's perfectly fine. Some of us give electronically. Some of us have an automatic setup. Some of us give through our checking account. Some of us give cash. Some of us give through a credit card. We're not going to be legalistic when it comes to that. That really is between you and the Lord, how you give and how much you give. But you do not have freedom to neglect giving altogether. And you also don't have the freedom just to give super infrequently. That is not what God is calling us to do in order to be faithful so let me again ask you some questions, church. Are you giving of your first fruits? Your first fruits. Are you giving to God regularly and what is right? Or are you giving what is left over and only when you're in a generous mood? If you're only giving when you have a surplus, or if you're only giving when it's Christmas season, or you're only giving rushing to get that write off then you are doing yourself and this church a disservice. We should be worshiping the Lord through our giving periodically and cheerfully. 
So our generous giving is passionate, it's punctual, it's proportional, it's periodic, which also means that we are giving on purpose. And we see this in chapter 8 and verse 13. A lot of people have read this and said, man, this is, Paul sounds like he's a communist, right? But this is not a socialistic redistribution of wealth that Paul is advocating for here. He says here in verses 13 and 14 that his aim is for fairness. But again, this isn't sanctified socialism. That's not what he's going for. He's not holding out the idea of a classless society. He's not pro prohibiting us from owning and enjoying private property. It's not weakening the strong to strengthen the weak, nor is it a government-sanctioned redistribution of wealth. It is none of those things, but what it is, it's purposeful, intentional, God-centered, Christ-exalting, church-based, voluntary giving because there's someone in need and we can meet that need. And listen to this. The tables might turn. At one point, the Jerusalem church was wealthy and they sent out missionaries and the Gentile churches get established. Famine hits. The Gentile churches are doing well. And now the Jerusalem church is in need. And all throughout life, that's what happens. There's ups and downs and ebbs and flows. And so we need to give intentionally and purposefully knowing that very truth. Paul says outright there in verse 13, look, he says, for this is not for the relief of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. It is supposed to be reciprocal giving. Now, there's all kinds of warning in Scripture. Look, if you're not going to work for food, then you're not going to eat, right? So we're not encouraging laziness. Uh, we, we don't want to just pick up the slack if someone is unwilling to be uh, working themselves. But it is saying that sometimes you're going to have a brother or sister in need, and God has prospered you, not just for yourself, but to meet that need. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 28, Paul says this, He who stills must still no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. So listen, church, again, the Lord has blessed you. Comparatively speaking, are you rich compared to the rest of the world? Absolutely. Absolutely. And let me just remind you that God has prospered us, not just to fatten our wallets, but he's prospered us to be a channel of his love and care and concern for those that have need, especially of those of the household of God. So passionately, punctually, proportionally, periodically, purposefully, but there's also a plurality element to this. This is a congregational effort. Back in 8.1, Paul wants the, the Corinthians to know of the grace of God given to the churches, plural, of Macedonia. You know, one of those churches is Philippians. So as we've been studying Philippians and seeing their heart and their love for Paul and their generosity toward him and giving a gift, this is a church, even out of their poverty, is giving. But it's not just them. It's the church of Thessalonica and Berea and possibly others. But we see this as congregational. In that Paul, he sends Titus, and then there's a mention of a brother who's like gets down with the gospel and he has success in preaching the gospel. All that to say is Paul's not acting alone. Titus is not acting alone. The brother who can preach the gospel is not acting alone. But this is, in fact, a team effort. It's a whole church that's involved in this. Look there at verse 20. Just the wisdom of Paul. And 
in doing it this way. It says, taking precautions, lest anyone discredits us in our ministering of this generous gift, for we respect what is good, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Paul was a man of integrity. He's not trying to fleece the flock. He's not trying to embezzle money, but he gets others involved because there's just wisdom in that. So let me just tell you, practically speaking, when we take an offering, we have multiple men, men that we feel are men of integrity and character, because we don't want to just leave it to one person. Nick and I, we have no idea who gives and how much and when. We don't. But we've entrusted that to the the stewardship team who informs us when we need to be informed. But it's just helpful to know that we want to be above reproach. We want God to bless us. We want God to continue to give. But if we're being lackadaisical and negligent and foolish with our money, the Lord is not going to continue to bless us as a church. So listen, there are times where you're going to give because a brother has need. James talks about that. 1 John 3.17 talks about that. But the principle here that we need to walk away with is the primary means of our giving should be to the local church for gospel ministry. Give, give all you want to other ministries. My wife and I, we do that. We love ministries. We support ministries. But primarily, our commitment, first of all, is to our local church. Finally, one last thing. We should give church plentifully. Plentifully. Our giving should be marked by extreme generosity. It needs to be more liberal than legalistic, more cheerful than compulsive, more faithful than fearful. Again, we're not trying to be foolish. We're not making commitments that we cannot keep. But at the same time, we don't want to become so rigid with financial conservatism that we start to make sinful excuses to be selfish. God won't bless that kind of church because there's nothing of faith in it. So that's not an option for us. You and I, we should be praying and thinking and scheming of other ways to give. William Plummer wrote this. He said, He who is not liberal with what he has does but deceive himself when he thinks he would be liberal if he had more. And we don't want to fall into that trap. Well, if I get that raise, if I get that bonus, if I get that break, then I'll give. There are things here at our church that we need to care for. We do not have debt. Our building is paid off, but there's some deferred maintenance. And so we want to be able to give toward refreshing those things and making these things last. And we're not just thinking about our lifetime. Uh, When I talk to Brother Joe, Joe's always telling me, hey, I'm going to be dead, long gone, but I want to see this church thrive for generations to come. That should be our attitude. Not just, the, not just us in the here and now, but for our kids and for our grandkids. And so we need to invest in our building, in our property. Nick and I, we'd love to bring on another staff elder, another pastor at some point. As the church continues to grow, the shepherding needs continue to grow. One very practical way that we can think about giving for our budget is we think about our missionaries. We are supporting the Stepanians who we love. We've had John Paul and Sarah and the family here. We've had the Hurleys here. They are doing a great work in Uganda. I love that. But can we maybe support other missionaries? Can we partner with with other missionaries who are doing great gospel work like Sufficiency of Scripture Ministries? I'd love to do that. I know that you would love to do that, but we have to be intentional and purposeful and prayerful to make that happen. Look, I don't know exactly how the Lord will bring about the fruit from our faithful giving. 
But what we can control is faithful financial stewardship. And you can pray for us as elders and as a stewardship team that we always stay above reproach, that we're faithful with how we're using our resources. And it's not a secret. You come and ask us. You come talk to Darren. You come, you come ask him questions. We're not trying to hide anything. If anything, church, what we want is to be faithful, to be generous, to be gracious, to give cheerfully. Why? Because God has done all those things for us. Listen, if you're not a Christian, we're really not interested in you putting any money in the plate. What we're interested in is you repent and believe. And so when we say that giving is Christological, we mean that. The only reason that we're here, the only reason why we gather, the only reason why we make any sacrifices is because we realize that Jesus came and lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. That he actually took our place. He became our substitute. He died on a cross that we so rightly deserved. And we begin to contemplate the sweetness and the beauty and the kindness and the mercy of his grace. It should compel all of us to want to give of our time, our treasure, and our talent for the glory of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. What, what a blessing uh, as we pause in the middle of our exposition of Philippians to kind of reorient our minds and our thinking about your generosity to us. And Lord, we're just convinced that, yes, our giving, it needs to be theological, it needs to be Christological, it needs to be very practical, passionate, punctual, proportional, periodic, purposeful, plural, and plentiful. And Father, I just love the way that Paul ends there in 9.15. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be moved and motivated, not out of guilt, but out of your great generosity to us. Help us, Lord, to not hold on to things with a tight fist, but to be very generous, very liberal. I'm reminded of the words of Thomas Madden, who said, A holy life and a bounteous heart are ornaments of the gospel. Lord, help us to preach the gospel, to live the gospel, to proclaim the gospel with the generosity that you've shown to us and the generosity that we can show to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.